One imagines that the world of animal experience has a limited vocabulary. Whether it occurs in a dog or a cat or you and me, the frustration of our wishes makes us feel a sense of anger. The landscape of sounds and sights describes a common environment to both the dog and the dude. Some sounds are louder. Some objects are in motion. All of us earthling animals stand in similar relation to the world. We want food to eat and a warm place to lie down. Thus, we are similarly motivated. We are subject to fear and anger, thirst and lust. Accordingly, our brains are structured in a remarkably similar way. I suppose, after all, we are cousins in the phylogenetic tree. Would a race of aliens, also arrayed with receptive systems to take advantage of light and sound and chemical traces, and subjected to competitive evolution, come to have the same kinds of qualitative experiences that we know? If so, it would be by a convergent mechanism, the way that flight evolved separately in bugs and birds to take advantage of a common atmosphere. Of course, humans have our own nature to distinguish us from our cousins. We have capacities and pursuits to accord with our social environment and our intelligence. We're quite like chimpanzees, only more so. I've been on a philosophical streak of late. What do you say we get back into some neuroscience? In the blank slate, Steven Pinker writes, quote, The visual system dominates some half-dozen of the more than 50 major areas of the cortex that can be distinguished by their anatomy and connections. Many of the others underlie other functions such as language, reasoning, planning, and social skills. Though no one knows to what extent they are genetically prepared for their computational roles, there are hints that the genetic influence is substantial. The divisions are established in the womb, even if the cortex is cut off from sensory input during development. As development proceeds, different sets of genes are activated in different regions. The brain has a well-stocked toolbox of mechanisms to interconnect neurons, including molecules that attract or repel axons to guide them to their targets, and molecules that glue them in place or ward them away. The number, size, and connectivity of cortical areas differ among species of mammals, and they differ between humans and other primates. This diversity is caused by genetic changes in the course of evolution that are beginning to be understood. Geneticists recently discovered, for example, that different sets of genes are activated in the developing brain of humans and the developing brains of chimpanzees. The possibility that cortical areas are specialized for different tasks has been obscured by the fact that different parts of the cortex look similar under a microscope. But because the brain is an information processing system, that means little. The microscopic pits on a CD look the same regardless of what is recorded on it, and the strings of characters in different books look the same to someone who cannot read them. In an information-carrying medium, the content lies in combinatorial patterns among the elements. In the case of the brain, the details of the microcircuitry and not in their physical appearance." Unquote. Steven Pinker extends a number of well-reasoned arguments in favor of a universal human nature, as opposed to the idea of the mind as a blank slate or tabula rasa. Naturally, we can learn new information and master skills through experience, but even this would be impossible if we were not innately capable of intelligence or innately motivated for evolved purposes. In the preceding passage, he makes the point that the cerebral cortex does plenty of its development prior to our being born and faced with the external environment. Different genes are active during brain development at different places and times, thus the cortex and its connections are sculpted according to evolved schematics. This would explain why we have different numbers and types of neurons in different cortical regions. 
In fact, the process of development is quite complicated. As the axons of one type of neuron enter a region, their cellular processes present or release molecules which interact with the cells there to induce them to express different genes and proteins. The inverse happens too, so that the innervating axons encounter molecules which induce them to change. So it can't be assumed that an area of cortex would be specialized the way it is if it weren't for the impact of neighboring regions and incoming signals. Nevertheless, this whole process is genetic in nature. The resulting structure will contribute to differential levels of fitness, so it has always been subject to natural selection. In humans, this has resulted in cortical regions specialized in such varied cap capabilities as language comprehension and the recognition of faces. In contrast to this view, Jeff Hawkins argues in his book A Thousand Brains that the cortex is essentially composed of the same repeating subunit with a common information processing capacity. He writes, quote, The neocortex is a sheet of tissue about the size of a large napkin. It is divided into dozens of regions that do different things. Each region is divided into thousands of columns. Each column is composed of several hundred hair-like mini-columns, which consist of a little over 100 cells each. Mountcastle proposed that throughout the neocortex, columns and mini-columns perform the same function, implementing a fundamental algorithm that is responsible for every aspect of perception and intelligence. Mountcastle based his proposal for a universal algorithm on several lines of evidence. First, as I have already mentioned, is that the detailed circuits seen everywhere in the neocortex are remarkably similar. If I showed you two silicon chips with nearly identical circuit designs, it would be safe to assume that they perform nearly identical functions. The same argument applies to the detailed circuits of the neocortex. Second is that the major expansion of the modern human neocortex relative to our hominid ancestors occurred rapidly in evolutionary time, just a few million years. This is probably not enough time for multiple new complex capabilities to be discovered by evolution, but it's plenty of time for evolution to make more copies of the same thing. Third is that the function of neocortical regions is not set in stone. For example, in people with congenital blindness, the visual areas of the neocortex do not get useful information from the eyes. These areas may then assume new roles related to hearing or touch. Finally, there is the argument of extreme flexibility. Humans can do many things for which there was no evolutionary pressure. For example, our brains did not evolve to program computers or make ice cream. Both are recent inventions. The fact that we can do these things tells us that the brain relies on a general purpose method of learning. To me, this last argument is the most compelling. Being able to learn practically anything requires the brain to work on a universal principle. There are more pieces of evidence that support Mountcastle's proposal, but despite this, his idea was controversial when he introduced it, and it remains somewhat controversial today. I believe that there are two related reasons. One is that Mountcastle didn't know what a cortical column does. He made a surprising claim built on a lot of circumstantial evidence, but he didn't propose how a cortical column could actually do all the things we associate with intelligence. The other reason is that the implications of his proposal are hard for some people to believe. For example, you may have trouble accepting that vision and language are fundamentally the same. They don't feel the same. Given these uncertainties, some scientists reject Mountcastle's proposal by pointing out that there are differences between neocortical regions, unquote. Well, hold on. Perhaps Hawkins is just overstating the case put forward by Vernon Mountcastle in the 1970s. It does appear that the basic structural motif of the neocortex is a cortical column consisting in a stereotypical six-layered arrangement of neurons 
which are highly and specifically interconnected in the vertical direction. If we take a piece of cortex from a monkey, or a cat, or a human being, and apply a cellular stain so that we can see the neurons under a microscope, we will recognize six cellular layers or lamina, and it may be difficult or impossible to guess which part of the cortex we have, or indeed which species it was collected from. It will be obvious that layers three and five contain the triangular-shaped pyramidal cells, with granular cells prominently occupying layers two and four. Most incoming projections terminate in layer four, regardless of which region of cortex we are dealing with. All of this is in agreement with Hawkins. But it seems most likely to me that a prototypical cortical column having formed will become specialized as soon as incoming projections show up and add their molecular and functional ingredients to the recipe. This is still driven by genetics. It's almost naive the way we think of the body as one thing and the environment as another. This comes from our frame of being a whole animal with an inside and outside. As as for a nascent cortical column, as far as that's concerned, though, the axons invading it from somewhere else in the brain are part of the environment. In fact, ultimately, these and other tissues, blood vessels, for example, make up the whole environment for the cortical column. The nutrients which diffuse in are akin to the weather, and the action potentials and molecular signals which arrive on its dendrites are its only perceptual inputs. If this model is true, then we should expect that switching the axons which enter a particular area of cortex will result in transforming that region into one which handles that new type of input. Pinker brings up a study by Mirganka Sur in which ferrets were effectively rewired so that visual inputs on one side of the brain rerouted to the auditory areas of the thalamus and cortex. The idea was to determine if signals from the retina could induce the auditory cortex to become visual cortex. The researchers worked with ferrets because apparently, unlike many other animals, including us, the innervation which occurs between auditory and visual nerves and their respective areas of the thalamus takes place after they are born, so they could be tampered with shortly after birth for the sake of experimentation. Sur and his colleagues found that the auditory cortex of these ferrets now responded to visual stimulation, including neurons which reacted to movement and lines of particular orientations. Moreover, they could move toward objects that were only detectable by vision on the appropriate side. Here's how the New York Times described it. Quote, like inventive electricians rewiring a house, scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have reconfigured newborn ferret brains so that the animal's eyes are hooked up to brain regions where hearing normally develops. The surprising result is that the ferrets develop fully functioning visual pathways in the auditory portions of their brains. In other words, they see the world with brain tissue that was only thought capable of hearing sounds, unquote. Well, maybe, and maybe not. In his book, Pinker writes, quote, Let me turn to the most amazing plasticity of all, the rewired ferrets, whose eyes fed their auditory thalamus and cortex and made those areas work like a visual thalamus and cortex. Even here, water is not being turned into wine, Sir and his colleagues noted the redirected input did not change the actual wiring of the auditory brain, only the pattern of synaptic strengths. As a result, they found many differences between the co-opted auditory brain and a normal visual brain. The representation of the visual field in the auditory brain was fuzzier and more disorganized because the tissue is optimized for auditory, not visual analysis. The map of the visual field, for instance, was far more precise in the left-right direction than in the up-down direction. That is because the left-right direction was mapped onto an axis of the auditory cortex that in normal animals represents different sound frequencies. 
and thus gets inputs from the inner ear that are precisely arranged in order of frequency. But the up-down direction was mapped onto the perpendicular axis of the auditory cortex, which ordinarily gets a mass of inputs of the same frequency. Sir also notes that the connections between the primary auditory cortex and other brain areas for hearing were unchanged by the new input. So patterns in the inputs can tune a patch of sensory cortex to mesh with that input, but only within the limits of the wiring already present. Sir suggests that the reason the auditory cortex and the rewired cortex can process visual information at all is that certain kinds of signal processing may be useful to perform on raw sensory input, whether it is visual, auditory, or tactile." Unquote. The New York Times jumped to the conclusion that the auditory cortex was now capable of seeing rather than hearing, as if the modality of the experience is directly dependent on the organ of detection. But this makes no sense. I suggest that the rewired ferrets were probably hearing with retinal input. Note that the primary auditory cortex of the ferrets was still wired up to its association cortices in the normal way. That implies that early genetic programs had already installed an auditory system in the temporal lobe before the first action potentials entered it from the ear canal. Suppose, in an alternative experiment to the ones carried out by Sewer, we just severed the cochlear nerve in the newborn ferrets. Now they can't hear anything, right? But suppose we hooked up a stimulator which activates layer 4 neurons in the primary auditory cortex. What is our young ferret experience when we do this electrical stimulation? I submit that it hears something. Why would it see something instead? That part of the cortex underlies hearing experiences, not visual. The auditory cortex in Sir's animals hardly knows that the incoming information is coming from an optical source rather than an auditory one. When Sir and his colleagues presented light signals for the ferrets to detect and move toward, it would have been more like a game of Marco Polo than anything else. You might have played this game in the swimming pool when you were a kid. The person whose turn it is has to close her eyes and try to chase down her friends in the water. In order to locate them, she calls out Marco, to which all of the other players call back Polo. This provides a sense of direction and distance so that she can go after them and tag them. At no point is she seeing anything at all. She is using sound to navigate around the pool in pursuit of her playmates. It is a critical piece of neurobiological science that Sewer and his colleagues accomplished, but it doesn't show what the New York Times reported. In fact, the experience we have of visual and auditory stimuli is not a product of the primary cortex, visual, auditory, or otherwise. It happens further upstream, among the association areas, which are highly integrated with one another. Alas, to them, even the activity of the primary cortex is an outside environmental source of information. I make the claim that we are this integrated system, born of electromagnetic fluctuations across a broad network of neurons. The system is an emergent property of the biological substrate. That's why we, the conscious, don't exist when the brain is in a state of deep sleep. The components are disintegrated, so no system is manifest. Signals from the reticular formation in the brainstem spread throughout the thalamocortex in the form of acetylcholine and norepinephrine, which effectively awakens us into being by integrating the causality across the body of the network. A kind of mental homunculus takes form, like Voltron when the team assembles. The question which is begged by this account is this. How do regional activities within the thalamocortex give rise in particular to visual or auditory experiences, or for that matter, thoughts? Yes, indeed, that is the right question. 
I already made the claim, which I think is perfectly defensible, that the source of the incoming stream of action potentials does not determine the nature of the resulting experience. But that doesn't mean there aren't multidimensional expressions of the data which make them more useful and descriptive to conscious beings. The nerve which carries information from the human ear to the thalamus does not have nearly as much to convey as that which comes from the retina of the human eye. This is simply a fact of the receptive organs and the number and types of receptors which they possess. The cochlea is essentially a one-dimensional instrument. The pitch of a sound determines which hair cells along its membrane are triggered. Helpfully, there are two ears so the data which come into the thalamus can be compared between them, which is why we can locate our friends in a game of Marco Polo. The human visual system occupies a much larger area of the cortex than the auditory system does. This accords with the fact that there are more receptors in the retina and they come in three varieties of photoreceptor cones plus the rods. And the photoreceptors are arrayed like a satellite dish on the inner surface of the eyeball in a two-dimensional disc. Like the ears, we are helpfully equipped with two of them, so the signals can be compared in order to inform a 3D representation of space. It takes a lot of computational real estate to analyze all these data, hence the human visual cortex is massive. I think it necessary that the ultimate answer to the above question has to do with the geometrical structure of electromagnetism in the integrated thalamic cortex. Since Mriganka Sur's ferrets impose the optic nerve upon the auditory thalamus and cortex, the region would have been under-engineered to extract the richness of visual data. Instead, it treated the data as one-dimensional and passed the results up to the connected association areas of the brain. Had this been a genetic alteration rather than a surgical one, the animals could have adapted. Over the course of thousands of generations in a wild environment, natural selection would have been able bit by bit to make use of the multidimensional information arriving in the auditory cortex from the retina. I predict after much competition that something like a true visual cortex would eventually occur in the temporal lobe, if the ferret survived long enough. Moreover, I predict that those animals would come in the fullness of time to have a true visual representation of the environment before their eyes. The phenomenology doesn't depend upon spatial position in the brain. It depends upon the geometrical relationship of its interconnections. With three different species of photoreceptors providing independent overlapping sets of data, the human mind acquires three different primary color experiences corresponding to nothing more than the three maxima of stimulation responses. We understand these as occurring on a color wheel with the three primaries at equidistant points. Nothing of these primary colors inheres in the universe. We all know that electromagnetic radiation occurs on a full spectrum of wavelengths. Thus, the arrangement is linear, not circular. If the human retina had three completely different species of photoreceptors, one for microwaves, one for radio waves, and one for infrared, we would nonetheless live in a familiar world of color qualia because that is the geometrical form which adaptively represents the data stream.